Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is, the mind of Christ, and to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we are continuing our series on the Augsburg Confession, today covering Article 17 on Christ's Return for Judgment. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of Bethlehem Evangelical Lutheran Congregation in Mason City, Iowa, and my companion confessor in conversation about this article today is Pastor Mark Bestel. He is pastor of Calvary Lutheran Church in Elgin, Illinois. Pastor Bestel, welcome back to Concord Matters. Thank you so much, Sean. It's great to be back with you and with your listeners. Absolutely. We enjoyed having you on for that Catechized Life series where you served as our catechist for, what was it, 30-some episodes or something like that? Yeah, pretty close. I think it was 26, 27, somewhere in there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, certainly uh, a great pleasure to have you back on. And today, uh, while we're dealing with the Augsburg Confession, it's still catechesis, right? We're teaching our confession of the faith and today taking a look at Christ's return for judgment. And to just get us started here, I'm going to go ahead and just read the article in its entirety, and then we'll dig into what we're specifically confessing here and then get into the broader teaching catechesis of that there. So, uh, of course, on this show, we read from Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, a reader's edition of the Book of Concord, available to you from Concordia Publishing House, the publishing arm of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And this is Article 17 from the Augsburg Confession on Christ's Return for Judgment. Our churches teach that at the end of the world, Christ will appear for judgment and will raise all the dead, citing 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 through chapter 5, verse 2. He will give the godly and elect eternal life and everlasting joys, but he will condemn ungodly people and the devils to be tormented without end, citing Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. Our churches condemn the Anabaptists who think that there will be an end to the punishments of condemned men and devils. Our churches also condemn those who are spreading certain Jewish opinions that before the resurrection of the dead, the godly shall take possession of the kingdom of the world, the ungodly being everywhere suppressed. And that is the entirety of Article 17 from the Augsburg Confession on Christ's Return for Judgment. All right, Pastor Bestel, as I feel like I say on every article here, lot they could cover. We could do a whole series on the return of Christ and what that will be like as we see it in Scripture and so forth. But to kind of get us into our discussion for the hour or so here today, what is it that the confessors, the Lutheran confessors, are specifically saying here in this article? I think to best understand that uh, it's helpful to see its place as it follows the previous articles. When we understand how the Augsburg Confession came about and how it was written. We know that in history, for example, there were three different sets of articles that sort of prepared or were the preface for the Augsburg Confession. The Marburg Articles, the Schwabach Articles, and the Torgau Articles. 
And the Marburg articles were written by Luther, and then Luther and Melanchthon and Jonas and Benz, and I believe Agricola, also then served in putting together the Schwabach articles. And the Schwabach articles sort of formed what became the first 17 of the Augsburg Confession articles. And here we are on Article 17. The Torgau articles were sort of the articles that listed all the different abuses of Rome. And so you sort of get to that in the final articles beginning with number 18 and then following on from there. And so Article 17 is really the conclusion in many ways of the first 17 articles. And what better way to conclude than, of course, with the end of all things. Christ will come again in his glory, and he will come again for judgment as we confess in the Apostles' Creed, as we confess in the Nicene Creed, as we confess throughout the history of the church that Christ did not just come once to die for sins, but that he will come again to deliver those who have believed in him. And therefore, the focal point here for the confessors to lay this down for their hearers is what do we confess, positively speaking, about the end of times? What do we confess about Christ coming again in his glory and being our judge? And then, of course, how does that compare as you get into the confutation and to the apology? How does that compare to the Roman Catholic teaching on these things, which on the surface sounds pretty similar. In fact, uh, in the Apology, the confessors will say, well, the adversaries or the opponents, they accepted this article without reservation. And we can get perhaps later into the hour why I would think there'd actually be some reservation from Rome's standpoint. And so it's sort of surprising that they uh, accepted it without any cause for concern from their theology standpoint. But this is why the confessors set this out this way, is that this is the concluding of the first portion It's a very small, simple article, and yet a very necessary article, certainly for the full confession of the Christian faith. Uh, You know, when you think of the second article of the Creed, for example, I think most Christians are probably familiar, or most Lutherans familiar with the Apostles' Creed, and certainly with the Nicene Creed, and talking about the fact that he will come again to be our judge. Uh, Think what happens to the Christian faith if we leave that out. If we leave that out, Well, you you end up with a Christ who came to save us from our sins, and then he goes up into heaven, and he just sort of leaves us forever. And yet Christ promised in John chapter 14, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come and I will bring you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. He promises to come again, in a sense, as vindication for his church, but also he promises to come again to bring to judgment and to not leave unjudged those who refuse to believe the gospel. Uh, This is a big point, and we can take probably much of the hour, and as you said at the top, we could spend weeks on this, showing how often in the scriptures this comes up. But I suppose just to take a little bit of time on this would be good as we get further into this. So this is a very small and simple article, and yet a very necessary one to bring to completion the work of Christ, the work of our salvation. I would also point out in its place in the confessions. Notice how simple and small it is, and yet how these small, simple articles that we would say, well, you know, perhaps take it or leave it, some people might be tempted to say. And yet these small, simple articles are ones that are included by our confessors, by our confessing forefathers, and saying, we would rather that you strike off our head than that we would give up this gospel. That even these small, little, tiny things 
you know, we can talk about, and, and you and I talked about in the Catechized Life series, what about the idea of closed communion and what does that entail? And, you know, sometimes people think, well, this article isn't big enough to be part of that discussion. And yet the confessors put it in here precisely because even these supposedly small articles are articles that without them, the Christian faith is not complete. Without them, there is no unity to the confession of the full scriptural record. And so these little small articles are so necessary to help us paint the proper picture and the complete picture of what the Christian faith is. One more thought on that before we get perhaps into the scriptural uh, understanding of some of these things. Notice how this article follows on the heels of Article 16, which talks about civil government. Now, think about the implication there, that sometimes people will say, well, I'm going to confess the second article of the creed, Jesus died for my sins, he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven, he will come again to be my judge. And they think of that in a very, very spiritual manner and having really nothing to do with, if you will, daily life. It's simply, well, I'm a Christian, this is what I believe in my church, and then I'll go about daily life living. And yet, this Article 17 comes right on the heels of discussion about the civil government as a reminder that all things in daily life are under Christ. And when Christ comes again in his glory, all things will be brought into judgment. All things will be brought, as the scriptures say, you know, as enemies are made the footstool under his feet. Everything will be brought under Christ's judgment. Because as he says in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. And so the very fact that right before this, you've got an article that has, uh, in a sense, very little with what the average Christian would think has to do with the church's life. They would say, oh, well, civil government, that's sort of kingdom of the left. And in America, we think of separation of church and state. And therefore, this is just sort of the next unrelated thought in a series of articles. No, this is actually bringing to completion the fullness of Christ's authority over all things in heaven and on earth. So its position in the Augsburg Confession is beautiful and wonderful in its teaching ability to say what exactly falls under the reign of Christ, what falls under the reign of God's authority to deliver his church unto himself as Christ promised in the scriptures. I think that's a really excellent setup for getting into this article, and especially what you took us to right there at the end. I'm with you. I think there's always this temptation to divorce what we confess in the church from our daily life, especially here in the United States. You know, we kind of, we relegate our worship and our Christian life to just what we do on Sunday mornings or things like that. But even there, I like how you highlighted that as we talk so often on this show, that you know, this is a part of the body of doctrine that Scripture confesses. And much like St. Paul talks about the body that is Christ, right? You can't say to part of the body, I don't need you. I mean, wouldn't you miss your finger, <laughs> right? I mean, you know, or, or even just your pinky toe, uh, right? You know, just you would miss that. And you don't want to just go chopping off things. Or as we've also talked about that image of the wagon wheel, the old wagon wheel, if you will, and the spokes coming into that or a bicycle wheel, I guess, works as well. And if you start losing those spokes, well, then everything falls apart. And so this really does matter for our confession, for how we come together and share in the Lord's Supper, that there be no divisions among us, doctrinally or otherwise, right? But then also, especially as we've seen in the civil realm here of late, that, you know, there's all these concerns about, are we coming into World War III with what's going on with Russia and everything else like that? I think a time for confessing what we believe about the reign of Christ 
is certainly every time, but certainly at this particular time, as we see all those sorts of things magnified for us. And so getting into this article with that kind of setup and that mindset, that it really is very practical. And that's one of the reasons we love having you on the show, Pastor Bessel, is you really, you confess the doctrine so well, but bring it down to this very practical level that we would see this as being played out in our daily Christian life, like a true catechist. So really do appreciate that setup there for us. So go ahead then and get us into the teaching here of this article as they set out there, you know, our churches teach at the end of the world, that at the end of the world, Christ will appear for judgment and will raise all the dead. Go ahead and get us into this here. Sure. Happy to. You mentioned some of the practicalities of these things in terms of daily life. And before we jump too far into this, something that you said brought this to mind. You know, I even point out to the folks in my Bible study and in my congregation, even something like the concern that the world is going to end because we do not treat the environment well enough. I always reassure them, look, as Christians, we do believe in being good stewards of the world, but the world is not going to end until Christ comes again in his glory, right? And so this article is so theologically important for a Christian's comfort in daily life, for their understanding that, yes, we ought to be good stewards. We ought to be concerned about not only the environment, but about what's going on in, the Ukra- in Ukraine and Russia and all of those different things. We ought to be concerned about those things, but not because we have control over the earth or because the world is spinning out of control. As we say every Sunday, uh, if you use Divine Service Setting 3, like our congregation uses every Sunday, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. And the same God who made the heaven and the earth is the same God who redeems it, the same God who will come again and deliver the kingdom unto himself. And so it is a very comforting theological article, no matter how short it is here in in the Augsburg Confession. It is something that is so robust in its theology that it's great to dig into it in the scriptures. So as we do jump into that, think of how early in the scriptures we hear of these things. We don't just hear of it in the book of Revelation, right? Uh, how often do you, do you hear the TV evangelists and the fundamentalists always pointing to the book of Revelation as if the book of Revelation is the hear-all and end-all of scriptural theology regarding the second coming of the Christ? That's just not true. You can look all the way back into the Old Testament and find indication of these things. For example, uh, not too long ago, my congregation and I were studying the minor prophet Joel, And the minor prophet Joel, whose name, of course, means Yahweh is God, in the first and second chapters, he's talking about God's judgment upon Israel and upon Judah and calling his people to repentance. But then when you get into the third and final chapter, the image changes a little bit, the scene changes a little bit, and God is calling all the nations to judgment for how they treated his church. And this really sets up very nicely scenes of the end that really hint not only at the judgment carried out upon Christ on the cross, but also carries out scenes that sound very reminiscent to what we hear in Revelation. For example, in Joel chapter 3, it talks about the Valley of Jehoshaphat. And the Valley of Jehoshaphat, I can't remember off the top of my head the exact interpretation there back into the Hebrew, but something like the Valley of God's Judgment. And so he calls the nations together, and he actually reverses what is said in Isaiah there, where in Isaiah chapter 2, it talks about the idea of beating your swords into plowshares and things like that, because there will be no war anymore. 
in Joel, he actually says, no, actually beat them into swords because your time for battle is coming. I am going to stand up against the nations. And so there's this whole image of judgment in Joel chapter 3, not against his people Israel that he has called to repentance, but against all the nations. And so you've got this comparison to what we hear in, in the book of Revelation. Everybody knows about the, uh, the place of Armageddon, and yet you've already got that hinted at way back in the Old Testament. Now, again, that comes uh, as you go through the Old Testament and that comes with the coming Christ. That comes upon those who do not want to, if you will, be found in Christ, right? Those who do not want to be hidden in Christ because Christ is the one who takes on the judgment for the sins of the whole world. And yet, even as Christ comes, John the Baptist is always pointing to Christ, not only as the Lamb of God who takes upon himself the sin of the world, but also the one who will come in judgment. Remember when he calls out to the Pharisees and he says, who warned you, you brood of vipers? Who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? Well, what's he talking about? He's talking about judgment day. He's talking about the fact that, yes, Christ who goes to the cross is the same Christ who will come again in glory, and he will judge all those who were too proud to be hidden in him and to be clothed in his righteousness, and they want to stand on their own. So you've got John the Baptist saying to the Pharisees, you shouldn't have been given the chance to repent. Boy, how gracious is God that he even warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Because God's warning, his warning is gracious because he could just come in judgment now. And yet he calls to repentance. He is patient, long-suffering, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relents over disaster, as Joel says. And yet the very word patience means there will come a breaking point. There will come an end. Patience is not forever. When a parent is patient with the child, that's different than allowing the child just to do whatever the child wants to do forever and ever and ever. We want parents to be patient, but as pastors, we do not want parents to spoil the child, spare the rod, spoil the child. And in the same way, God promises to be patient, but his law is holy, his law is good, and he will exact punishment upon the unbelieving world that refused to hide in his Christ. And so you've got John saying that to the Pharisees. You've also got John saying things about Christ like his winnowing fork is in his hand. The axe is already laid to the root of the tree, right? This is early in the Gospels. This is not the end of the Gospels. This is chapter three or so of Matthew. And so you've got, even as Christ comes to be baptized by John, and even at the beginning of his ministry, this already is happening. Of course, when you go to the other end of the Gospels, and you have, for example, especially the book of Matthew. How much of the book of Matthew, of the end of the concluding chapters there before Christ's arrest and crucifixion and before the night in the upper room, how much of those last few chapters? It's all about the end times. It's all about, you know, it, it sort of sets up with the disciples saying in chapter 24 when they're in the temple, you know, Lord and teacher, when will the end be and what will be the signs? And he and Jesus launches into a whole monologue on this. He starts by talking very directly about some of the signs they will see. And then he moves into parable form. And he mentions in chapter, the end of 24 and into 25, a couple of very well-known parables, parables that we include often in our hymnody when we get to the day of judgment and the end of the church year. We talk about a lot of those parables then. Uh, and so he gets into the parables of the ten virgins, and he gets into uh, about the bridegroom coming and things. 
And then he moves out of parable form and he moves right back into simple, straightforward dialogue. In fact, uh, in chapter 25 there, when people read that, they often read the mention of the sheep and the goats as being a parable. Uh, But if you look at the words very carefully, it does not say that he's speaking in parable form at that point. Uh, He's speaking quite literally to them, even if using an image of sheep and goats. Otherwise, he's speaking of what the end will look like and what will happen on that final day. And so, In the Gospels, there's a lot there about Christ coming again in his glory. We can also move into the epistles, and we see how often the epistles this comes up, whether it's 1st and 2nd Thessalonians is cited there in the the Confessions, 1st Thessalonians 4, talking about Christ coming again and the day coming. So 1st Thessalonians 4 actually is that beautiful picture of the dead being raised. But then as you get into five, it gets a little bit more ominous in terms of the unbelieving world and God's wrath and judgment. And then when you get into Second Thessalonians, right away, it hits into judgment and then the man of lawlessness and all of this stuff. So First and Second Thessalonians is a big one. Certainly also, we can also point to Peter's epistle in which Peter is saying to the people, yeah, I know you've been wondering when Christ will come and when all of this will be fulfilled and the, and the scoffers will come in those days saying, you know, where is your God? Everything has gone on like it began at the beginning of the world and nothing has changed. And Peter says, don't worry, God is not slow in keeping his promises, but he is patient that all may reach repentance. And yet the day will come like a thief in the night. And so scripturally, just as much as in the confession, scripturally, even before you get to the book of Revelation, which actually, when we're talking about the end times and the second coming and the judgment of Christ, the book of Revelation, if it's taught correctly and understood correctly, my personal opinion, it is the single most comforting book in the New Testament for the church. Not because the gospels aren't comforting and because they aren't full of promise, but when you see all that play out in the years from Christ's ascension to Christ's coming again in his glory, I don't think there's a single more comforting book in the scriptures than the book of Revelation. And yet, sadly, the devilish work of the fundamentalists has so messed up people's reading of the book of Revelation that people can't enjoy it anymore. They're afraid of it. And every time they read it, they think that the end of the world is coming upon them with great fire and wrath and all the fire and brimstone preaching of the fundamentalists. So we can get into that in the second half, I suppose, in terms of the disunity in the church because of some false teachings about this. Uh, I know we're sort of coming up on a break here, but the one other thing I would say about this before we get into how that theology plays out into our daily life is notice how Christ promises the church the great comfort of all of this when he says, lift up your heads, your redemption draws nigh, right? We often think of the word redemption as just happening at the cross, and then everything that comes after it is Again, fire and brimstone, fear and trembling, all of this. No, when we talk about the word redemption, we should understand that when Christ seals the New Testament with his blood, when he dies on the cross, he ushers in a New Testament. And then when he rises again, he rises as the first fruits of the resurrection, which means, in a sense, even from the point of his resurrection, we are already sort of, if you will, in the last day. And you could think of ourselves as always existing in this last day reality, and that this last day reality will always be in place until Christ reveals himself visibly before all the world. 
And so what a comfort to hear Christ not tell his church to tremble at his coming, but rather to say, lift up your heads, your redemption draws nigh. That salvation that I've earned for you is now finally being revealed to you. It doesn't mean we don't live in it now. It's sort of the now, not yet reality. But now we have to live in it by faith. On that day, finally, there will be vindication where the whole world will see that the church was right to preach not only repentance, but to preach free salvation in the blood of Christ Jesus. Yeah, I think that's a really important point to accent in all of this, too, because a lot of times, and I, I think it's because of the bad teaching out there that we actually reject and condemn in this article. And again, we'll get into that probably in the second segment here. But I think a lot of times when you talk about the day of judgment, there's just this overwhelming sense of fear and hesitancy to talk about it, to think about it. Uh, I'm with you. I think people misread and misunderstand the book of Revelation and really are apprehensive to even engage with it because it's just kind of this, again, this kind of fearful thing. But I think even just in general, just the way that the Christians and the Christian church so freely talk about even the way that we look at death as a result of what we confess with the return of Christ, that it's not a fearful thing for us. And yet for so many, it is. And sometimes even gets offensive when this isn't properly understood. And why it's so important that it should be properly understood so that we can talk about, you know, I, I always, I just very freely talk about death, even when you're baptizing a baby. And that seems overwhelming. You know, nobody wants to think about this beautiful little child that's been given as a gift to us, right? Dying. But yet at the same time, that's the reality. And for a Christian who has a right understanding of this, we have no problem talking about the death but the Christian death that we all will face and we can engage these different topics with about two minutes here. Was there anything that you wanted to say on that before we take a break here and then we'll get into some of those things we reject and condemn on the other side? Yeah, I, I don't know if two minutes is enough to really do it justice, but absolutely, as you mentioned, the death of a baby tied in with baptism, that even our understanding of the sacraments depend upon a right understanding of the second coming. Right? We are baptized into Christ's death that we might share in his resurrection, which will come to pass at his second coming. Or what of the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper, you know, as we talked about in the Catechized Life series, in some ways, the Lord's Supper is the sacrament of the end times. It's pointing us forward. It's preparing us to depart this world in peace. Lord, let us now thy servant depart in peace. But it's not just preparing us for death and that's it. It's preparing us for the resurrection, and it's preparing us for Christ to come again in glory. It's preparing us for that marriage banquet that the end times parables are always talking about. And so you can't see the Lord's Supper, and you can't see baptism apart from the great promise that Christ will come and vindicate his church. And so the church's vindication is so important in understanding the end times and the last day correctly that all Christians might have great joy in studying this topic. And actually, maybe uh, when we start the second half of the hour, I'd love to talk about how even our hymnody confesses this with wonderful joy and not with fear and trembling. Yeah, I think that will be a great place. And even this is exactly the way that we pray too, right? Deliver us from evil. We pray that all the time in the Lord's Prayer. And so we certainly want to get into seeing how we confess this. And so that'll probably be a good place to start on the other side of the break even before we get into the things that we reject and condemn, which is important to highlight those 
so that we'd be aware of that as well, so that we don't have a wrong understanding that we would find the comfort in this. So we'll pick those things up on the other side of our break with our guest today, Pastor Mark Bestel. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, and you're listening to Concord Matters on KFUO. Greetings, saints of our Lord. This is Brady Finneran of Thy Strong Word. Join us to be renewed and refreshed by God's Word and to be pointed to our resurrected Lord Jesus every weekday from 11 to noon, live or on demand, because God has gifts to give for you. Concord Matters as we continue talking with our guest today, Pastor Mark Bestel. He is pastor of Calvary Lutheran Church in Elgin, Illinois. And we are talking about Article 17 from the Augsburg Confession on Christ's Return for Judgment. And Pastor Bestel, right before break there, you were setting up for us all of the ways in which our liturgy, our life within the church and as Christians, we just continually confess again and again that this is the focus of our faith, really, when you think about it. You know, obviously, justification, we talk about that as the chief article, and this relates to that as far as the hope of our Christian faith. But it is that hope that sets up that Christ is coming again, and he's going to bring to fullness everything that he did there on the cross for us. And we just confess this again and again and again in our liturgy, in our life within the church, the way that we pray the way that we sing you were talking about. And so I think it's really important to think about that a little bit more and to talk about that because as I kind of set up there too before we went to break, you know, sometimes people, even within our churches, they just get so overwhelmed, again, probably because of some bad teaching on these things. We'll talk about that. But they just get so overwhelmed thinking about death or the return of Christ, and they just get filled with so much fear and foreboding, which is the very thing that Christ says, don't be overcome with it. But it's somewhat surprising that we do when this is such a big part of the way that we talk and live as Christians, especially once again, through our liturgy and life within the church. And so go ahead and cover some of those things and help us think about and refocus ourselves on the comfort that really our confession within the church delivers to us that Christ is coming again. Sure. Bad teaching brings with it a focus on today. And bad teaching says you have your best life now. And we hear that so often in American evangelicalism and in America's sort of a religiosity, because I, you know, it's even hard to call it American Christianity, because by dropping off the hope for tomorrow and the hope for the life of the world to come, it really makes Christ simply a vending machine God for what am I going to have today? And yet, in the scriptures and therefore in our confessions, as you say, we're always looking for tomorrow. Uh, St. Paul says at one point, he says, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he already sees. By, by very definition, you don't hope in what you have now. You hope in what is to come. Uh, in fact, in that same part of Paul's letter to the Romans uh, there, he's also talking about the idea of the whole creation waiting in eager expectation for the revealing of the sons of God. And so all of creation, all of the created order, the deer and the bunnies and the squirrels, they're all hoping for all of this because this is 
fundamental to God's promise of deliverance, not a continued best life now in this world, but rather life in the world to come. One of the most comforting passages, I think, for folks when they struggle in these times is that passage from John 16 where Jesus says, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. He doesn't say, be of good cheer, I've made the world a better place for you to live in and succeed and have your best life now, but rather there's this element of overcoming it and in a sense subduing it and helping you know that he is going to bring you out of this. This is what we confess and this is our hope. Uh, This past Lenten season, the congregation that I serve our Lenten midweek series, I entitled Luther's Language of Hope for the Church in Times of Distress, and talked about how these words like testament and promise and word and sign and faith, how these all tie us into this idea that we can have hope for what is to come, regardless of what is going on today. And so we do not have to get into these doldrums about how life isn't great now, because our theology points us beyond all of this, and therefore our confession points beyond all of this into what is to come. Uh, We talked about this in the first half of the hour, but think about some of the things. uh, Think about prayer and how when Jesus teaches us to pray, twice in the Lord's Prayer, he hints at this. Thy kingdom come, and as Luther says in the meaning there, he says, well, you know, this has to do both with God's kingdom coming now and also God's kingdom coming at the end, but then certainly also deliver us from evil, that when our last hour comes, God would give us a gracious end. And so even as the Lord teaches us to pray, he's teaching us to anticipate the end, to anticipate with joy and with great hope and certain hope. Because hope, by the way, the word for hope in the Greek is the word helpis, which means help, right? That we can have hope because we know on whom to call for help. If our help is going to be answered, then we have hope. If we do not believe that our cry for help is heard by anybody, then we're hopeless. And so the Christian lives in hope about Christ answering that in his good timing. And when he comes again in his glory, then all creation will have to bend the knee and know that, yes, the Christian has been helped. The Christian's hope was not in vain. And so we confess that as he teaches us in our prayer life. We confess it in the liturgy with, as we said in the first half of the hour, the Nunc Dimittis and uh, the beautiful remembrance of the Nunc Dimittis. You've certainly got the dismissal from the Lord's table in which the pastor blesses the communicants with that promise and that blessing that this will keep and sustain us as we look forward to the life everlasting, right? So the words are not now this holy body and precious blood of Christ strengthen and keep you just for this life, but strengthen and keep you in the one true faith unto life everlasting. That's the goal. That's the hope. And that's the reason we sing the Nunc Dimittis following the Lord's Supper. And that's the reason that we take such great comfort in the great benediction that concludes the service and saying, now as I go out into this world, this world of tribulation, I am not without my Christ, but God blesses me on my way, and he promises that when he gathers us together the next Sunday, it again will be not only the giving of the inheritance right there and then, but again also a foreshadowing in some ways of the fact that he will gather his loved ones home. Uh, During the week, even, we are taught to focus on this with services and the 
orders for the week like matins with the singing of the Tedeum. Uh, and there's that great section, the Tedeum, with all the five flats or whatever that talks about him coming to be our judge. Now, that brings us to the hymnody. Think of some of the great hymns, and probably the first one, and, and the one that came to my, my mind as soon as I said he will gather his, his loved ones home. Think of that hymn that we sing every Thanksgiving, whether your congregation celebrates Thanksgiving Eve or Thanksgiving Day. We sing, Come ye thankful people, come. And the first verse is all about harvest and all about the fruits of the earth. But then verses two through four are all about the second coming. And I don't know that people recognize that as they're singing it because all of our thoughts are on the harvest and all of our thoughts are on pumpkin pie and on turkey and mashed potatoes and stuffing. And yet when you read those words and sometime, in fact, what we do at our congregation is we will also use that hymn at other parts in the church here in which the focus might be on something having to do with Christ's return. And we will simply omit verse one and we'll just sing verses two through four because verses two through four are all about the second coming when Christ will gather his harvest home. And that understanding of the harvest is so beneficial. Uh, before I get on to other hymns, that made me think of this. Take another little tangent here. Think of the colors of our vestments. You know, I don't say this with much authority in terms of the books, in terms of textbooks, but when I think of the green color in our vestments, especially if your congregation happens to use sort of the traditional historical colors, you ever notice that the green in our pyramids and the green of our vestments is not a brand new, new life green? Uh, maybe it is for Epiphany, but if you're following more of the historic colors, the green during Pentecost season or during Trinity season, depending on you, you know, three year, one year, but the green throughout the summer is more of like a harvest green. It's a green that, that looks like it's turning into gold so that some people think, oh, that's sort of ugly. It's not that bright Irish green that sometimes people think of, but rather it's that green that is fading into gold because of the reality that Christ is coming again. And our entire summer and our entire Christian life in this world looks forward to Christ coming again in his glory. And therefore, as we sing our hymnody, that is the focal point, especially as we get into the Sundays after Reformation and All Saints. All Saints sort of ushers in that last month of the church year where the focus is on the end and Christ's second coming. And we in our congregation almost have that last Sunday of the church year, we almost treat as a festival in some ways, as a reminder that, yes, this second coming is just as important a part of the Christian faith. We don't just sort of flatly end the church year, but rather the church year ends in that glorious promise that Christ is coming again. And so we sing hymns about it. Wake, awake, for night is flying. The watchmen on the heights are crying. Uh, the bridegroom soon will call us. The clouds of judgment gather. Uh, another one here that people don't often think about, and I'm sorry to burst everybody's bubble with this one, but the hymn Joy to the World was actually written to be about the second coming. In fact, it was originally entitled by Isaac Watts, The Messiah's Second Coming and Kingdom. And so now as you think through your head, and we're not in the Christmas season when everybody reads joy uh, or you know sings Joy to the World, and uh, of course we immediately come to Christmas. But as you actually listen to those words in a non-Christmas context, notice how much of it has to do with Christ ruling the world, Christ having authority over the world. Uh, it's not really about his first coming, as much as we can sing it regarding his first coming, that yes, here is the Christ, 
here is God fulfilling his promises and, and that proto-evangelium from way back in Genesis 3, all that is fulfilled. And as it's fulfilled, God shows himself to be the true and trustworthy God. And so we can sing it certainly regarding Christ's first coming. And yet it was actually written regarding Christ's second coming. And it fits in very well there. So whether it's our hymnody of the church and, you know, think of how glorious too some of those hymns are. Probably the most glorious hymnody of the church year is actually, I would argue, is actually not Easter. It's actually Ascension, Christ in his glory, and then Christ coming again in his glory. You have sort of a mixture between glorious hymnody with Christ's second coming and also then some of the foreboding hymnody for the impenitent. And so like the clouds of judgment gather, again, that hymn, just the, you know, for the, for the listeners out there that, that know that hymn right off the top of their head and can hum the tune, it's a, uh, you know, there's, there's definitely an element of foreboding there. And so whether it's the glorious reality of the hymnody or sort of the foreboding reality of it, we are confessing that this is an essential, an essential part of the church year because it's an essential part of the Christian confession because God in his divine wisdom has said, this is an essential part of my church's redemption and vindication. I'm going to push you a little bit here because uh, maybe it's just because I'm a staunch guy and I don't like omitting any stanzas of hymns, but I would actually commend that we keep the first stanza of come, ye thankful people, come, when we sing that even at other times of the year. And I love its inclusion with Thanksgiving and excellent point on there. But we think biblically about this way, right? So you got John chapter 12, right? Where Jesus says, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the earth, right? And he's talking about that resurrection and it's connecting us to that. And uh, just to give a little credit to my wife, she's such a dear gift to me. And I don't bring up how much a gift she is on this show enough to me, but she wrote an excellent article in the September 2021 issue of the Lutheran Witness called The Very Stones Cry Out. And it was a kind of her reflections of our life living in Southern Illinois, right along the graveyard and seeing the wheat fields out in the background of that graveyard and just seeing that as the image of our Christian life. And yet the very promise that is given to us in the resurrection and return of Christ is glorious victory. Would that we see that connection and make it all of the time. This is a very biblical way of talking. But once again, When we take a look at that hymn and we see it in its context, it's playing out that whole idea there again of this is directing us towards the hope that we have. And we want to continue to accent that. And it's excellent. Again, bring in, there's so many hymns we could talk about here, but I don't know. Did you want to respond since I decided to push it in just a little bit there and kind of poke you with that whole uh, not omitting stanzas? I will have certain members in my congregation who will thank you for pushing me to include the stanza. <laughs> you know, I, the only reason that I would say that some of our members benefit from omitting it is because very specifically in that first stanza there, you've got the whole image of gathering in the harvest before the winter storms begin. And, it, you know, people's mindset immediately goes to winter storms on earth rather than, and you're right to say it, we can think theologically here. You know, I, I can't remember if I said this in our Catechized Life series, but I think some people think that the way in which nature coincides with the church year is accidental. I don't know that it is. I think God in his infinite wisdom said, no, the nature is going to confess this. All creation waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, people have said, well, what about in the Southern Hemisphere? And I said, yeah, but the scriptures were written in Israel, the Northern Hemisphere. 
So yeah, you know, I think that certainly where our folks are well catechized and trained to see that even the winter's day or the winter storms that are all around us, even those should speak theologically to us. And where folks are well trained for that, then great, sing uh, stanza one. If pastors don't think people will get that connection, then leave it out for a time until you get a chance to teach it. I definitely agree. I mean, I'm a firm believer that especially generations past that they ordered their life around these very theological ideas. And I don't think it's accidental at all. I think, you know, you, you see these harvest festivals and so forth intricately connected to the church. And we still have hints of that at times, you know, you, you, you'll get Oktoberfest and those sorts of things that jump in there and everything. But I think all kind of came out of this connection to this is how we celebrate the harvest and that focus that it brings. And once again, even just just the idea of how it begins, right? You know, using that first line, come, you thankful people, come. We're, we're actually thankful in this when we have a right understanding of it. But uh, as we see the time progressing here, and it can always get away quickly on us because uh, just so many great thoughts here. But I do think that this is something that is important and perhaps more important in this particular article than the other articles. Again, not to downplay justification, which is still the chief article and everything revolves around that. And so having a right confession of that is essential. But as we see in so many of these articles, we specifically condemn the teaching of others who teach differently. And I say that I think it's the most important here because as we've said several times now, when you have poor teaching on this, it brings so much fear and foreboding and just apprehension and talking about this very important doctrine that is actually meant for our comfort and consolation. And so uh, go ahead and get us into some of the things that we condemn here. We condemn the Anabaptists and certain Jewish opinions, but I think it's also fair to bring in here, uh, you mentioned in your setup that, you know, it's kind of surprising that Rome doesn't push back on this article a little more so we can bring in the confutation and apology here as well. So Go ahead and get us into some of those things with uh, about 10 minutes or so left here. Sure. So to understand just how far off some of this bad, uh, some of these bad views get, just a simple reminder for folks of how beautifully and simply Luther puts it in the third article of the Creed and the meaning when he talks about the fact that on the last day, God will raise me and all the dead. So notice not just all believers, he will raise me and all the dead and give eternal salvation to me and all believers in Christ. This is most certainly true, right? This is our great comfort. And so as simply and yet as beautifully as that is said, think of how that is attacked and undercuts that people lose their confidence when they hear some of these other views. So we've already hinted at sort of fundamentalism, which tries to read the book of Revelation overly literally, I would argue, or millennialism, which often comes from this fundamentalistic way of reading Revelation. They would hold to, you know, this millennial view is somewhere in there, there's this supposed 1,000 years or, or this exact 1,000 years, either before Christ comes the first time or, or after, you know, sort of before the rapture or after the rapture, this whole notion that Christ will establish an earthly kingdom, which then gives people a lot of despair when they see that the world isn't going the way they think it should in order for Christ to establish his earthly kingdom. But Christ never promised to establish an earthly kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world, he told Pilate. If it was, I would have my servants coming to my side. So millennialism, either pre-millennial, post-millennial, before the thousand years, after the thousand years, is easily debunked 
when we simply point out that Christ says, no one knows the day or the hour. Not even the Son of Man in his humility knows the day or the hour. Uh, How can we say that's true if we can point to this thousand-year reign with specificity? Okay, so uh, I think that one's very easily debunked. Uh, Another problem here is sort of this universal mindset that all will eventually be saved. Well, then Christ's judgment is toothless. He doesn't actually come to be our judge. But no, his judgment is certain and true, and so not all will be saved. But also, you've got within this idea of some simply being annihilated, which I think is a very, um, you know, it very much sounds like the nihilism of, of sort of contemporary America today, that people just say, well, let's just destroy the body. Let's just, uh, you know, when, when a loved one dies, uh, let's just destroy it and disregard it because it's just annihilated. It just returns to the earth and that's all that there is to it. And there's just sort of the sense of annihilation rather than the reality that God will raise all flesh, including the flesh of the unbelieving. And yet then separating the sheep from the goats, he will bring the sheep to that which has been prepared for them. Notice not that which they've earned, but that which has been prepared for them and which is their inheritance. So you've got fundamentalism, millennialism, universalism. You've also got this Zionism, this idea of needing to redeem the holy lands. So in American politics today, that can be still popular, especially on the political right. The understanding that if we want Christ to come again, we need to reestablish Jerusalem and we need to reestablish Israel. Uh, It's sort of the same, well, uh, a tangent reality to Mormonism and Mormonism's idea that you need to establish Zion in the United States somewhere and that Christ, when he comes again, will come to Zion, uh, supposedly in, in the United States. Which, which, by the way, that's a, that's a beautiful reminder, too, of the church's hope, is think of, especially in church history, especially in American history of Lutheranism, how often the word Zion was used to name churches, for example, or there's that book titled Zion on the Mississippi, that they're living in a hope of what is to come, the hope of redemption, the hope of Christ bringing his church to glory. Uh, now, again, people can misunderstand that and use that in a very worldly understanding. And so when Zion is used incorrectly, rather than the heavenly Jerusalem and the heavenly Mount Zion, as indicated in Isaiah chapter 25, and as I mentioned earlier, we were studying Joel not too long ago, and it's right there in Joel as well, this divine or heavenly Zion. Rather than understand it correctly, if it's misunderstood, then you've got people trying to establish Zion on earth And that's this Zionism that we need to be very concerned about. Another one would be uh, sort of akin to that would be sort of the American evangelicals notion or a lot of Americana's notion of manifest destiny, that America is God's country and that as God's country, when Christ rules the world, he will do so through the United States of America and that the United States of America is God's favored nation. And therefore, everything that the United States of America does must be good and right because it is carrying out God's glory. Think of the battle hymn of the Republic, that old hymn that, or old to the United States anyway. And it's, you know, this whole very uh, militant understanding almost of God loving America as God's country and, you know, Christ using America to reestablish his kingdom on earth. Not really a great understanding. The last one, though, I think that isn't often talked about is that, again, as we said at the top of the hour, I'm a little bit surprised that Rome did not have more problems with this for one reason. Rome preaches purgatory. 
And how can you have somebody who's spending millions and millions and millions of years in purgatory, unless you buy indulgences for them, if Christ is going to come again? What happens to that soul in purgatory? Is he all of a sudden released from purgatory uh, so that uh, you didn't have to pay all those indulgences? You know, what, what about that second coming in relation to the question of purgatory? So, any Roman Catholic friends you have out there or any listeners to your show who might be Roman Catholic, uh, I'd be really interested to get their take on what is the relationship between the millions of years supposedly of purgatory and the fact that Christ could come again tomorrow. Christ could come again later today. And yet the Christian can live in great joy and comfort and hope. And we can even pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus, come. There's the great end of revelation that is so comforting, right? That the church is bold to pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus, come. Uh, Luther, I think I say this on pretty good authority. There's there's a uh, sort of a traditional saying of Luther that was ascribed to him, at least, where he was asked, what would you do if you knew that Christ was coming again tomorrow? Something to that effect. And he said, well, I'd, I'd plant an apple tree, right? Or if you knew that your life was over tomorrow, what would you do today? I'd plant an apple tree. We can live in joy, even in this broken world, even though it's broken, nevertheless, it is still the creation that God gave to serve us, and we can live in joy and comfort and in Christian love toward one another, knowing that we will be vindicated, and the church will be cared for and is cared for all the way unto life everlasting. Yeah, I think it is interesting that Rome didn't have a problem with this, but as has come up in this series a few times, you know, the confutation wasn't necessarily Rome's best theological work, <laughs> and they weren't maybe necessarily attuned to seeing the connection that I think you rightly see that, you know, there's obviously a problem there that these things don't line up. If you're going to preach the doctrine of purgatory, especially at the time of the Reformation, and as that was all going on, uh, if you're going to preach that, well, how does that line up with Christ's return and gathering in everyone in that moment? Well, obviously they don't line up, but again, I can't answer for the Roman Catholics. I don't know that I found anything scholarly that kind of tries to make sense of those things, but yeah, so Rome did accept it and there was not much in the apology on this one either. They just basically say, yep, they accepted it. So uh, with just a minute or so left here, always like to end each episode as we go through the Oxford Confession here. How does this article, Article 17, which you've so well confessed and taught for us here today. How does this set up and connect to what's coming next in the Augsburg Confession for us? Sure. As we said at the top, it sort of is the end of the first portion, really, of the Augsburg Confession. And so it sort of concludes all these 17 articles in uh, sort of a bookend there. And so when you get into Article 18 and following, now you're getting into the articles where there's probably a little bit more conflict between the Lutheran position and the Roman position, though certainly we would find that also in the earlier articles with some of the things. And yet the things that are much more visibly a conflict now will come to the fore. So this is sort of a nice end to the harmonious portion of the Augsburg Confession. And now we're going to get into the latter articles in which there's some headbutting. Absolutely. And so what we'll pick up next week then is we'll look at Article 18 on free will, which of course was one of those big articles of controversy and disagreement at the time of the Reformation. But thank you today, Pastor Mark Vestal, for joining us for Concord Matters again and teaching us this Lutheran Confession of Christ's Return for Judgment from Article 17 of the Augsburg Confession. It's been a pleasure having you back on again with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Sean. And thank you also, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church.